0: Well, one of my hobbies, which I'm learning as an adult means something that you enjoy doing but you never actually do, uh, is fishing. I love to go fishing. I grew up doing a lot of crappie fishing and and fishing for catfish with my dad. Uh, Every year we go on a a good crappie fishing trip down to Truman Lake. And then I had friends in high school and college who got me into bass fishing, and I had to learn. Bass fishing, you, you've got a whole new set of, of tactics. You've, you need different poles, you need different lures. I had to get some different fishing equipment, learn what kind of lures bass like. And my favorite, what quickly became my, my favorite kind of go to fishing lure for bass fishing, is called a Rapala shallow shad wrap. That probably means nothing to most of you, but this little lure. I I found that I could catch fish no matter what, no matter where I was. I could catch a good bass on a Rapala shallow shad wrap. And especially if you want to know in the color called fire tiger. That's a pretty creative name. It's just bright green and yellow and orange with these black stripes. But what's good about the Rapala shallow shad wrap is that it's deceptive. It's deceptive. The, the movement that it has in the water mimics a fish. It mimics a fish, a, a small fish that other fish, namely bass, want to eat. They, they see that and they think it's something that they need and they're, they're attracted by its flashy colors and so they go after it. Yet its hooks remain unseen, undetectable by the fish until it's too late. We'll often like unsuspecting fish you are being bombarded by deceptive lures the world the flesh and the devil are always fishing for your soul so to speak and the world the flesh and the devil are deceptive and crafty in their lies often the lie is presented in terms of something that is it sounds good it sounds true it has the ring of truth To it, maybe it even contains biblical phrases. It's flashy, it's eye-catching, it's always something presented as a need. But it is laced with deadly error and its hooks remain hidden. We need to spend time studying and knowing the, the ways and lies of the enemies of our souls. But the best remedy to the lures of the enemy is being filled with the truth. There are times when you go, you go fishing and the fish don't bite because they aren't hungry. They don't need, they don't want the bait, so they don't go for the bait. Well, the best remedy to guard against the lures of the enemy is for us to be filled up with Christ. I think that's what was on Paul's mind as he wrote the book of Colossians. This book is so filled with the, the excellencies, the fullness, the riches, the sufficiency of Christ. But, but there's a reason that Paul is highlighting Jesus' sufficiency. It's not just merely to, to pontificate on an abstract theological truth. The, the Bible is never concerned with abstract theological truth. The Bible is always concerned with truth that leads to a certain kind of living. So Jesus's sufficiency on display in Colossians was to keep them in the faith. Jesus's sufficiency is highlighted in the book of Colossians for us to keep us in the faith. Paul's tactic for keeping the Colossians from pursuing the deadly false teaching that was spreading amongst them was to fill them up with Christ. I see this concern in the opening chapter in a couple of verses, a couple of key verses for the book. Look at look at verse 22 of chapter 1. It says, he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. His concern, as seen in these verses, is that they not be moved away. His concern was that they actually make it to be presented before Christ in perfection. And they must, verse 23 is highlighting, they must continue in the faith for that to happen. They must. Persevere; They must not be led astray. Stated positively just a few verses later, Paul summarizes his ministry in verse 28 of chapter 1 of Colossians. He says, We proclaim Him, that is Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. We we proclaim Christ in His sufficiency so that everyone reaches the end, So that everyone perseveres to the end and stands before God perfected in Christ, complete in Christ. That was Paul's concern for the Colossians. But but who who were the Colossians and what were the threats that were coming up in the Colossian church? We'll look again at the first two verses of Colossians there in verse 1, in chapter 1 says, Paul, an, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. So, so Paul obviously wrote this letter and he sends it to the, the Christians, the saints. That's just another word for Christians is saints. If you're a Christian, you're a saint, you're somebody who's been set apart by God They're the faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, and we we don't know that much about this city of Colossae. We don't know much about this church. We do know that Paul had never actually been to Colossae. He'd never met these people, so so most likely as Paul was in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19, one of his companions that was with him. Um, epaphras epaphras went to colossae and he preached the gospel there he planted this church there and then epaphras was leading this church Uh, sometime later paul was on house arrest in rome and epaphras he, he comes to paul and he's concerned he's burdened for these people in colossae that he's been shepherding and there's this trouble that's stirring in the church well, what was going on in the church that was so troubling for Epaphras? What was going on that caused him to travel all that way to Paul to express this concern and to, to hear from Paul? What do we need to do here, Paul? What, what was going on? Well, that's actually a, a matter of intense uh, scholarly debate, and the, the debate over what's called the Colossian heresy really has no conclusion because we don't exactly know. Uh, I love the honest admission from one Bible scholar. He said, scholars are notoriously prone to advance sweeping theses on the basis of sometimes quite flimsy and debatable evidence. Sometimes we simply have to admit that we cannot know enough to be sure. This would seem to be one of those instances in naming what exactly was going on in Colossae. But here's what we we do know. What we do know is that there was a huckster in the church at Colossae. There was a, a false teacher who was leading people astray. Now, I, I said a, a huckster, a false teacher. I think there was only one because of the exclusive use of, of the singular that we're going to see is here in just a minute throughout the book referring to this false teacher, but this guy was acting as a fisher, so to speak. He was seeking to lure people away from Christ in subtle and, and deceitful sneaky yet still flashy kinds of ways and what was it that he was leading them astray with again we we ultimately don't know we can look through the book and kind of notice elements of his false teaching so look at look at chapter 2 turn over to chapter 2 verse 4 chapter 2 verse 4 Paul says I say this so that no one again notice that's a singular tense there I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. So whoever this false teacher was, whatever arguments he was making, they were persuasive to the Colossians. It was persuasive. Jump down to verse 8. He says, see to it that no one, again singular, takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world rather than according to Christ. So the, the nature of this false teaching, it was, it was philosophical. It was rooted in the wisdom of men, not in the wisdom of God. It was according to the traditions of men. It was temporally based. It was appealing to what could be seen, what they knew from one another. It wasn't from Christ. It also likely had some kind of ties to a, a Jewish kind of asceticism. Look at chapter 2, verse 16. Look at 2.16. He says, Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement in the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with a growth which is from God. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body but are of no value against fleshly indulgence so what was this guy doing that this arrogant man was elevating what he had to say he was saying this is this is true wisdom this is true knowledge he was claiming to have some kind of Visions telling the Colossians that they needed to hear what he had to say, and and that was undermining the sufficiency of the gospel and the sufficiency of Christ. This false teacher was baiting them, he was trying to entice them with what he said. Here's what you actually need to hear. He paired this claim with some kind of extra biblical. Legalistic regulations on festivals and food—what they could and couldn't eat on Sabbaths. He's saying these things were—maybe were he was saying these things are necessary for having. If you want to have visions like I'm having, you need to uh, follow these regulations so that you can also have these visions. Or maybe they were just an added burden, or or maybe they were just lifestyle opinions. And those things always come with distortions of the gospel. This was Paul's primary concern as he writes the letter of Colossians, namely that they not be lured away from Christ. And again, I think he addresses it in a most helpful way, instead of just kind of going tit for tat and going through what this guy was saying, and well, that's not true, here's what's true, and he's saying this, and and let me refute that with this kind of error, like some kind of, you know, uh, discernment watchdog you'll find online. No, instead of that, he simply elevates the sufficiency of Jesus for everything and above everything else. In other words, what Paul tells the Colossians in this letter is all you need is Jesus. All you need is Jesus. Jesus is wisdom. Jesus is true knowledge. Jesus can bring about salvation. Jesus reveals the truth. Jesus instructs us in how we are to live. Jesus gives us all the rules that we need to live a life that's pleasing to God. Be satisfied with Jesus. He he is enough to meet all your needs so that you won't go after any kind of deception. You're filled up with Christ. You don't need anything else. You don't need any other revelation, you don't need philosophy, you don't need man's opinions, you don't need man's speculations, you don't need man's thoughts, you don't need extra biblical rules and regulations, you don't need anything other than Jesus Christ. And that's a message that we need to hear, isn't it? That's a message that we need to hear. There are so many other voices constantly whispering in our ears, telling you what you really need. Media and social media are a never-ending stream of selling you on something. Here's an idea that you need to live your life better. A product, a lifestyle, sexual fulfillment A politician or political movement. Something you need. You you need whatever it is they have to offer. Whatever it is that you're selling that benefits, that they are selling that benefits them. That's what you actually need for your life. Our world is full of self-proclaimed experts peddling their opinions to you. Feeding you, roping you in with what they say you need. And cutting through all of that static. Colossians is a clarion call to enjoy the sufficiency of Jesus and not be led astray. Jesus is sufficient for all of life. He meets every need. We need nothing else. And if we are truly convinced of the sufficiency of Christ and satisfied with his sufficiency, we're not going to be led astray no matter what the lie is. So how is, how is Jesus' sufficiency for perseverance shown in the book of Colossians? I think that's what this book is all about. There's really three areas of Jesus' sufficiency necessary for perseverance that are highlighted throughout the book of Colossians. Three areas of Jesus' sufficiency necessary for perseverance. That's an outline for this book, an outline we're going to be following tonight as we overview this book. Three areas of Jesus's sufficiency necessary for perseverance. First, notice Jesus's sufficiency for salvation. The first area of Jesus's sufficiency necessary for perseverance is Jesus's sufficiency for salvation. And that's found in chapter 1, verses 1 through 23. Jesus's sufficiency for salvation. What is your greatest need as you sit here tonight every single person on this planet our greatest need is salvation and who alone can meet that need who can meet that need that we have for salvation only Jesus Christ and we know that in this room we know that and yet every every single day every single day we are tempted to look elsewhere we're tempted to look elsewhere for someone, something else to meet our need for salvation. If you're an unbeliever in this room, you're, you're somebody who, whose faith is not in Jesus Christ, you are looking somewhere for salvation. You're trusting in something for your salvation. You're looking to someone as your Savior. And most often it's ourselves. We, we think we are Good enough. We think we can be good enough to be accepted by God because we're a pretty good person, and we go to church, and we pray, and we read our Bibles, and all the other things that we think we do that make us good enough to be accepted by God. And, and that's that's true of unbelievers. That's also true of believers. We respond so often in that way to our sin. How do you respond when you when you sin? Ah, man, I re- I really need to fill in the blank. You're looking to someone else for your salvation. You're looking to somebody else to make you acceptable to God instead of just simply looking to Christ and confessing your sin and turning and trusting in Christ. We look to people, things, activities, behaviors, lifestyles, approaches to health and wellness for our salvation. We look all over the place. We hope in all kinds of things. And any time we do so, we're placing ourselves in danger. Danger of walking away from the sufficiency of Christ as the only one who can save our souls. The only one sufficient to save us is Jesus. This is all over the prayer at the beginning of the book, isn't it? What's he doing in this prayer? Well, I think this is a a prayer of thanksgiving for Jesus' sufficiency in salvation. That's the first section here in verses 3 to 14. It's a thanksgiving for Jesus' sufficiency in salvation. Look at verse 3 of Colossians 1. He says, we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of which you previously heard in the word of truth the gospel which has come to you just as in all the world also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth just as you learned it from Epaphras our beloved fellow bondservant who is a Faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, and he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. So, so who was their faith in? Paul's thanking God, your faith is in Jesus, who, who alone could save them that they were looking to for their salvation. Jesus. The message of Jesus, the gospel is the only effective and sufficient means of salvation, and Paul is thanking God for that. The gospel of Jesus sufficiently, effectively, and powerfully saves. Thank God. For that. That's what Paul's highlighting in this first section. He goes on in verse 9. He says, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we've not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. "...strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins." Thank God for the sufficiency of Jesus to save us. Only through him can the actions described there, can those be done. Can we be rescued and transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light? Can we be redeemed and forgiven? That's only through Christ. And why is that? Well, Paul explains in the next section here in verses 15 through 23. He's highlighting Jesus' sufficiency to save in this section. That's a, a title over this section, Jesus's sufficiency to save in verses 15 through 23. This is one of the, the richest, highest, most Christ-exalting passages in the entirety of the Bible. It's highlighting the supremacy of Jesus. And if Jesus is supreme, he is sufficient. So look at verse 15. It says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Who else is like Jesus? Who else is this true of? Who else can do what Jesus does in salvation as these verses Described. So, what else do you need for your salvation? Nothing. You need nothing outside of the sufficiency of Christ in his saving life, death, and resurrection. So, why are you looking somewhere else? Why do you constantly turn elsewhere? Stop. Stop looking there. Look to Jesus. Christ. If you don't look to Jesus's sufficiency for salvation, you're going to abandon Jesus. If it's not your daily practice to constantly cling to Christ and Christ alone, you're going to find something else and it's going to pull you away from Christ. Jesus is sufficient for our salvation and his sufficiency for salvation enables our perseverance and leads to our completion, our perfection. Secondly, the second area of Jesus' sufficiency. Number two, Jesus' sufficiency for truth. Jesus' sufficiency for truth. This is chapter 1, verse 24, through chapter 2, verse 23. The second area of Jesus' sufficiency necessary for our perseverance is that Jesus is sufficient for the truth. The, the, the lies that would lead us astray are always packaged and presented as some claim of truth. How, how often are we enticed by what is packaged as ultimate truth that we need? Well, this is really true, and this is really what you need to hear, and everybody else is lying to you, and this is this nugget of truth that you need to follow. No, we, we just need it. Jesus for the truth. Notice the, the first section here, chapter 1, verse 24 to 25, the proclamation of the truth of the sufficiency of Jesus. One twenty four to 25, the proclamation of the truth of the sufficiency of Jesus. Paul's whole task as he describes it here in this section is to proclaim Jesus and Jesus, a Jesus who is sufficient. Look at verse 28 again. He says, we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power which mightily works within me. The preaching of the sufficient Christ is sufficient to mature people, to be complete in Christ. The ministry of the preaching of the word of Christ highlights the sufficiency of Christ. For Paul, there is no distinction between the sufficiency of Christ and the sufficiency of his word. If Jesus is all we need, his word is all we need. We don't need another source of truth. We don't need other revelation. We don't need other information, insight, guidance, whatever else we're tempted to look to for truth. We don't need it. And if we follow it, it's going to cripple our perseverance. Other other voices claim to be heralds of truth that you need, but if they aren't proclaiming Jesus' word for the growth of his people, they aren't to be heeded because they will ultimately lead you astray if you hitch yourself to them and follow what they're claiming and presenting as the truth. Similarly, the next section in this area of Jesus' sufficiency is the sufficiency of Christ guards against philosophical deception. Chapter 2, verse 6 through 15 is highlighting the sufficiency of Christ and how it guards against philosophical deception. Look at verse 6 of chapter 2 of Colossians. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, Having been firmly rooted and now being built up in Him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed, and overflowing with gratitude, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. What's He saying? You have heard of Christ, you have received Christ. Don't go after something else. You don't need to go after something else. You don't need another source of truth. Why? Why don't you need another source of truth? Look at verse 9. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete. And he is the head over all rule and authority and in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him him in baptism in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him." Who, who is this Jesus, and why do you not need another source of truth? Because this is who he is. He is God himself, and what has he done for us? Brought us from death to life, canceled out our sin, offered us salvation and the forgiveness of all of our transgressions. What else do you need? Why else are you going for us? going after something else. No no other source of truth can do what Jesus does. No other source of truth can do the miraculous, supernatural, life-giving, soul-cleansing work like Jesus can. Philosophically sophisticated arguments can lead to your demise. They might sound really smart and sophisticated and philosophical, but they're not the truth of Jesus Christ. They're going to lead you astray. No matter how clever sounding they are, can they resurrect dead souls? What philosophical argument can take somebody dead in their sin and make them alive in Christ? It can't. Can can they bring about the forgiveness of your sins? No. So don't follow them. Cling to Christ and his word for the truth. Not only does the sufficiency of Jesus guard us against philosophical deception, the next section here, chapter 2, verses 16 through 23, shows us how the sufficiency of Christ guards against legalistic deception. The sufficiency of Christ guards against legalistic deception. And legalism, it's a word that gets thrown around all the time, and oftentimes it's not used in right ways. Uh, Most of the time, if you say, hey, you know, according to the Bible, Christians shouldn't do this. Well, you're just a legalist because you're saying that Christians should or shouldn't do something. You must be a legalist. Or if you talk about rules, oh, well, you're obviously a legalist if you're talking about rules. Now, we want to be clear, legalism actually is wrong and, and dangerous, but we have to know what we're talking about when we talk about legalism. Legalism is saying that your salvation can be earned through your works. You you must do something to be saved. That that is legalism. Or legalism elevates man-made rules above Scripture. So some sort of rule for how you must live or you must do X, Y, or Z, but it's not found in Scripture. That's that's legalism and that's what this false teacher was doing as we saw when we read this section earlier here in chapter 2. He was saying things like, you know, you have to eat certain things to be right with God. You have to eat certain things in order to do what's pleasing to God or receive these revelations or visions or whatever it was. We, we, don't, we don't wrestle with legalism like that, do we? About, about food choices? As if food choices are right and wrong on the basis of some extra biblical standard? We don't wrestle with that. I can't count how many times I've heard Christians shaming other Christians, either in person or on social media, for what they eat. Well, shame on you for eating this kind of food. You shouldn't be eating that. You must eat these things. And if you're feeding these things to your children, you're a bad parent. What you eat or don't eat doesn't make you any better than anybody else. Period. Your holiness is not dependent on your food choices. That's legalism. It's very clearly addressed here in this section. Jesus is sufficient to reveal the truth to us. We don't need your rules. We don't need my rules. We don't need the rules of some self-proclaimed expert on the internet. We need Christ and his rules for us. The sufficiency of Christ, the sufficiency of his truth, it guards us against philosophical deception and legalistic deception. It keeps us from going astray in either direction. If we look to Christ alone and trust in him, we listen to him, we're not going to veer off into soul devastating error. The third and final area of Jesus's sufficiency necessary for our perseverance is Jesus's sufficiency for life. Jesus's sufficiency for life. And this is all of chapters three and four are highlighting how Jesus is sufficient for life. This is the so what of the book of Colossians. If Jesus is sufficient for salvation and Jesus is sufficient for the truth, what should your life be? look like if it, if it shouldn't look like the man-made rules described in chapter 2 what should it look like well in a word it should look holy it should look holy uh, that's chapter 3 verses 1 to 17 Jesus's sufficiency for personal and interpersonal holiness That's what I think this section is highlighting Jesus's sufficiency for personal and interpersonal holiness uh, look at chapter 3 verse 1 He says, therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. What's he saying? Live in a way that reflects Jesus. Not, not worldliness, not temporary things. You're dead to those things. Those things aren't eternal. Well, that, that seems very, that seems, how, how do we break that down in, in practical ways? What does that look like practically? Well, well, look at verse five. Look at verse five of Colossians three. It says, therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man. But Christ is all and in all. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly, richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father." so because of the sufficiency of Jesus we can live truly holy lives personally we can walk before the lord in holiness and interpersonally in our relationships with one another's with one another not 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 living out rules that we've came come up with but living according to god's rules that's holiness, that's not, that's not legalism. Rules that are given to us by Christ in his word are good, not bad. God, God isn't anti-rules. When we hear about rules, we shouldn't just have this allergic reaction that automatically assumes rules, bad, equal legalism. No, Christ gives us, how many, how many commands were in that section that I just read? Those are the rules of Christ for us, necessary for our holiness. We need his rules for holiness. We need Christ to direct our lives and how we live so we don't go astray following man-made rules and regulations. And this holiness, it bleeds into every area and sphere of our lives. That's the final section in the book of Colossians. Uh, chapter 3, verse 18 through 418 is Jesus' sufficiency for family, society, and ministry partnership. This final section of the book highlighting Jesus's sufficiency for family, society, and ministry partnership. Uh, This section literally hits home. The, The sufficiency of Christ has implications for marriage, the sufficiency of Christ has implications for parenting, it has implications for work, for being an employee, for being an employer. It has implications for how we do ministry and how we pray and how we partner with other people in ministry. In specifics, this section instructs us. Wives, the sufficiency of Christ means you are to be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. The sufficiency of Christ enables you to submit to your imperfect husband. Husbands, the sufficiency of Christ means that you love your wife and you don't become embittered against her. Children, the sufficiency of Christ leads you to be obedient to your parents in all things. And he says here in chapter 3, this pleases the Lord. Fathers, parents, because Jesus is sufficient, don't exasperate your children don't exasperate your children. Your actions should reflect the sufficiency of Christ. If your actions aren't rooted in and flowing from the sufficiency of Christ, you're going to provoke your children to anger because you're going to be living in sin and hypocrisy and legalism and deception.'t Cause your kids to lose heart by your sinful behavior. Is your marriage struggling? Are you having a hard time in marriage right now? Are you struggling as a parent to shepherd the hearts of your children? Children, are you wrestling to obey your parents? Are you an employee or an employer who's just wrestling with how should I I live my life here working in this environment? Are you fighting to serve in your ministry in the church? What do you need? What addresses each and every one of those situations? What do, you, what do you need? Do you need a psychologist? Do you need a TED Talk? Do you need philosophical man-made ideas? Do you need a new diet? No. You need Jesus. You need Jesus. Jesus. By God's grace, you need to apply the sufficiency of Jesus to every area of your life. Press the sufficiency of Christ into every corner of your life. Let it be the banner that governs, rules, and dictates every aspect of life by God's grace. All of the sufficiency of Christ comes to us by the grace of God. Just as Paul opened the the letter there at the beginning, with grace to you, he closes with grace everything contained in the letter comes to us by the grace of God. In chapter 4, verse 18, he concludes, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my imprisonment. Grace be with you all. God's favor, God's grace through the sufficient Savior meets our every need. Jesus is sufficient for everything. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for your sufficient son who is our sufficient savior who is our sufficient source of truth who is sufficient for all of our life father i pray that as we walk through this book on on sunday nights this year i pray that we would grow in confidence trust and the sufficiency of your son and we wouldn't look elsewhere, that we wouldn't listen to other voices, that we wouldn't be led astray by the deceptive lies that are constantly trying to pry into our lives and lure us away from Christ. We pray that we would cling to him and look to him alone. By your grace and for your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.